Hey everybody, welcome to another Sermon Extra. Today we're going to be looking at uh, just two things that come from what we looked at before in 1 Kings chapter 5 in the Sermon Extra. We looked this Sunday at 1 Kings 5 where we're discussing how Solomon had it in his heart to build a temple for God and that part of that involved his intention in his heart, also his strategic partnership with Hiram, king of Tyre, as well as the efforts of the community, everyone playing their part. And I want to look today at the covenant of redemption first, and then also some resources for personal Bible study and growth. So first, let's consider the covenant of redemption. Solomon said, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. He had, it was an intention in his heart that he carried out. And if we relate this to Jesus as uh, the greater than Solomon, Solomon as a type of Christ, we see that Christ had it in his heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, namely to build the church, to build the church on the foundation of his own atoning work and sacrifice. Christ built the church. That's his mission. And he's continuing to build the church from his risen and reigning position at the right hand of the throne of God. But we can think of this intention of Christ. It didn't just arise in his earthly ministry. It didn't just appear all of a sudden. This was an eternal intention. It's an intention that rose from eternity. And it wasn't just the intention of Christ, but of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, really the whole um, every member of the Trinity is involved in the agreement to save um, to, to save people. This is often called uh, historically the Pactum Salutis, which means the, um, the covenant of peace. In the English tradition, it was called the covenant of redemption. Um, or some people just refer to it as the intra-Trinitarian covenant. That is, most covenants we think of in the Bible as relating between God and humanity— but there's actually a covenant before the ages begin within the Trinity itself, which is an agreement to save a people. Uh, this was described uh, by uh, the Puritan John Dixon in a document called The Sum of Saving Knowledge. This was actually one of the documents that often went alongside the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he describes the covenant of redemption that God, God has uh, chosen a people to save and graciously determined that uh, they would be redeemed. But then Christ had to agree to be the redeemer, to assume human flesh, to take sin, that there might be a people saved. And this also implies then the work of the Holy Spirit uh, to apply this redemption to people. And you might just think of this simply as the plan of salvation, that the plan of salvation began before history, and God determined this to take place. It was something each member of the Trinity agreed to in their own particular role. Um, in a sense, the Father we see as the creator of the world, the Son, the Redeemer, the Spirit, the applier of salvation. And this is the agreement of uh, the members of the Godhead. Now, there is some debate in the Reformed tradition as to um, how these roles are differentiated. So some that are concerned to maintain God's absolute freedom would say that in a sense, this is arbitrary, uh, that the Father chooses, the Son became the incarnate one, the Spirit applies, that the only reason they took these differentiated roles was just because they agreed to do so. Whereas others that want to maintain more the distinction in the persons of the Godhead would say that the roles chosen fit the characteristics of each member of the Godhead 
as that member. So it was fitting for the son to be the redeemer because he is the son. It was fitting for the spirit to be the applier because he is the spirit. And I'm not capable of adjudicating these such, such debates, but it can be helpful to be aware. Uh, one verse that I want to bring up that I just think shows some of these aspects is in 2 Timothy 1 uh, verses 9 and 10, which says this, that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Okay, so God saves based on grace. But he says that he, that this grace, he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That is, God was determined to show grace to his people before the ages began. And this was grace given in Christ, which means that Christ had already, in eternity past, um, assumed this role to come and be the redeemer uh, of his people, the mediator between God and man. And verse 10 says that this grace and calling has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what Christ's coming to earth did, it didn't show us something new, but it revealed something very old. It it was the revelation, the manifestation of a, a beautiful plan, a beautiful covenant of redemption, a beautiful agreement to save between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that is now being enacted. We see this further as the Spirit is poured out, one more element of this covenant of redemption being unfolded in a covenant of grace now coming to man. Uh, the covenant of grace, that is, how God actually saves us, his agreement with ourselves to save all those who trust in Christ, is the in-time outworking of that intra-Trinitarian covenant of redemption. And if all that sounds very confusing and maybe theoretical, uh, I think the takeaway, the beautiful takeaway is that this God didn't decide to save only after we had fallen and it was a plan B that, oh no, they, these people I have made, I guess they're so miserable I should save them. It was always God's plan to save. As one uh, um, music artist says, uh, it was in your heart to show mercy. It was in your heart to save. So it's a beautiful intention of the heart of God to display his abundant mercy and grace on vessels of mercy from eternity and past. So we can be so sure of God's goodness and love in his heart towards his church because it wasn't an arbitrary love based upon how well we're doing or not. It's a love that comes from eternity. Christ always had it in his heart. He intended to build a church for the praise of God. The covenant of redemption. The second thing I want us to discuss is uh, helps to Bible study. We talked in the message about strategic partnerships. That is, how we as Christians are not sufficient in ourselves with all the resources we need to do all that God has called us to. And so we need to strategically partner with others in order to receive of their gifts to grow that we might live full and abundant Christian lives. Just as Solomon didn't have the cedar trees he needed, Hiram didn't have the food that he needed, so they shared together. We need to be a sharing people. But I was thinking we can think of this on the level of our personal Bible study. There's an odd idea that can easily go around. That's the sort of idea that if I come to conclusions on what the Bible means myself, then that's like more spiritual or holy than if someone else tells me. So if I just read the passage of scripture blank 
and I just think it through, that's better than reading other people's notes on it and what they thought. Well, I hate to break it to you, but the Bible's been around a long time. And the Bible is often difficult to interpret accurately. And that's why God provided teachers in the church, because error crops up very easily when we're when we go solo. The Bible is given to the church, and it's interpreted and expounded as part of this greater history and a greater people. And it's very arrogant to think that we are the single enlightened person that should do all the legwork ourselves. Not all of us are equally gifted. Not all of us have studied the original languages. There's a great history to use. Uh, this was an error I definitely fell into in my younger years where I assumed that I knew better than everybody else. And if I figured out a novel way to interpret scripture, that I must be right and everyone else in uh, the church was wrong. And um, I just realized the arrogance at some point of what the confession would call private interpretations. And there is a humility involved in submitting to the wisdom of the people of God in the past and hearing different voices. And so one way to apply this is just in our personal Bible study, excuse me, is to bring in outside voices that can help us read scripture better and for greater profit. And so I highly promote that Christians should be reading study Bibles. Study Bibles are great. They The notes are sparse enough that they are not so tedious and time-consuming. They generally focus on helping interpret and explain the most difficult portions of Scripture and can be really helpful for just bringing a greater perspective and focus and accuracy in your daily reading. My personal favorite study Bible at this point is the Reformation Study Bible that is uh, put out by Ligonier Ministries. And um, definitely, if you don't have the, I think it's the 2016 updated edition, it's far, far uh, more comprehensive than the original edition, which was maybe 2003. But the notes there are just excellent. I'm using that for my daily reading, and I've found it very helpful. Um, yeah, very enlightening. And so study bios are really good for just orienting to make sure that we're not going way off track on our own. But also commentaries are very helpful. And I find most people's complaint with study Bibles is that you'll come across one particular verse that really sticks out to you that you want to understand better or that's tricky. And the study Bible just doesn't give you enough. And you know that you can check these things called commentaries, but you look at Matthew Henry and you're like, oh, that's so long. And I can't even figure out where the verse is. Um, so I just want to give you two recommendations that I've found really helpful in seeking to under, understand individual verses. If it's the Old Testament, I really like John Gill, and you can download apps on most smartphones, which is my favorite way to do it, to save search time, is you can download an app that has the John Gill commentary on it. He has a commentary on every verse of the Bible. He was a, his, um, a couple centuries old Reformed Baptist, and what I really like about him is that he has enough detail to be helpful, but not too much to be overloading, and especially as it regards the Old Testament, he brings in a lot of... Um, Jewish scholars, historic Jewish Jewish perspectives, as well as he very devotionally applies the text um, with a Christological focus. He's always bringing everything back to Christ. So it's very heartwarming, devotional, even as it helps resolve some difficulties for the Old Testament text. Uh, for the New Testament, my favorite is a 19th century Presbyterian named Albert Barnes 
who has a series called Notes on the New Testament. And I really love um, the help of Andrew Barnes' Notes on the New Testament as I'm studying that portion of scripture. Again, he, he gives more detail than others to help explain and resolve difficult issues, but he also has good heartwarming application, really convicting elements, and very helpful uh, just guiding in the Christian life. So I'd recommend that you partner up with John Gill and Albert Barnes and a good study Bible to help guide you in your interpretation. And I might be wondering, well, where's the personal part? The Lord speaking to me, the Spirit stirring my heart. Well, that often happens in application, right? We don't get to make up our own understanding of the interpretation of Scripture, but the Holy Spirit helps illuminate and apply Scripture to our own situations. So the task of meditation on Scripture is not mainly to interpret it, but it's to apply it to our hearts and lives, to look at an understanding helped by a commentary or study Bible and say, how do I live this out in my situation, in my family, in my marriage, in my church? How do I need to change my thinkings? Of what sins do I need to repent? How can I progress in obedience? We need to be doing that hard, hard work of application. Because really, meditation on God's word ought to lead to life change. We want to use uh, the tools God's given us in scripture and prayer to change to be more Christ-like. That's what we're after. That's part of the purpose of, again, the covenant of redemption. The salvation Christ brings us, Ephesians 1 says, is that we might be to the praise of his glory. But as Titus 2.14 says, that Christ redeemed us, that we might be a people zealous of good works. And so we need to hear what God's word says, the works it would set out for us, and seek to apply and obey them, knowing that we are purified in Christ, we're sanctified by the Spirit, and headed for glory. So the covenant of redemption and um, helps for personal Bible study. Uh, that's all I want to talk about today on this sermon extra. Um, have a wonderful day and walk with the Lord this week.